A wise counselor of mine once advised me to remember that whenever we stand in the light, we can expect to cast a shadow. He said that it was a psychological truth that when we receive any bright and glorious gift, we can expect some dark wages to pay. So, it made good sense to me when I learned that in the early church, the story of the temptation of Jesus was clearly linked to the story of his baptism. You recall the glorious baptism in the Jordan River when the Spirit of God descended on Jesus and a voice proclaimed, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. After that glorious affirmation, that standing in the light, the very same Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted and where he had to deal with the forces of darkness both inside and outside of him. The tempter was the devil, who has many names in scripture. He is called Satan, Lucifer, the adversary, the accuser. Often people dismiss the devil as a superstition or childish personification. Frederick Beekner writes, to take the devil seriously is to take seriously the fact that the total sum of evil in the world is greater than the sum of all of its parts. Likewise, the total evil in yourself. He goes on to say that to take the devil seriously is also to take seriously our total and spine-tingling freedom. And he reminds us that Lucifer was an angel who even in paradise itself was free to get the hell out. It seems no accident that Jesus was led to the wilderness. The wilderness, or desert, has always had a special place in spiritual formation. There's very little to distract us from the matter at hand. Good and evil loom large in high relief in its barrens. Early Christians sought solitude in its austerity, and they found abiding closeness with ultimate reality. Jesus' experience in the desert was prototypical for Christians, but followed the history of Israel. He was there 40 days as the Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness with Moses after leaving Egypt. And like the Israelites, he grew hungry. It was here that the devil made his first appeal. The devil's opening gambit was a thrust of doubt. If you are the Son of God, in other words, if what happened at your baptism really happened, command this, this stone to become bread. Jesus was hungry, and this temptation pulled his physical needs and at his mission. Would he become the great provider? Always there are those for whom food is the answer. It's difficult to think of the elderly making a meal of tea and crackers or children with no milk. And it's heartbreaking to see images of West Sudan where people are on the edge of famine. Clearly, feeding the hungry is a part of any new world mandate. But is food all there is to it? And as we heard in the first lesson from Genesis, the devil had used food as bait before. 
Jesus responded by quoting scripture and claiming there is more to life than bread alone. And our gospel adds that we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Which may be what led the devil to quote scripture in a subsequent temptation. For the second temptation, the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the top of the temple, and once more began by casting doubt on his vocation, his high calling. The devil said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels charge of you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's here that the devil quotes scripture for his own advantage, using the beautiful and consoling words of the 91st Psalm. Here Jesus is tempted to show and demonstrate his special relationship with God. We can assume this was difficult to resist. For one thing, the temple had not recognized him as Messiah, and they never would. A rabbinic tradition reads, when the king Messiah reveals himself, then he comes and stands on the roof of the holy place. This act would convince them all. But are miracles, which are acts of divine beneficence, to be called out for evidence? To be expected when requested? Is this the relationship of a creature to the creator? Fritz Kunkel, a psychoanalyst, says that every human being who prays seriously has experiences of this kind, some miraculous experience, some unforeseen help or guidance, some happening against the law of averages, will make a person feel that he or she is protected in a special way, and that the infinite power of creation is cooperating with him or her. It is a grave temptation to expect God to bail us out of dangerous situations that we have chosen. We are, in effect, tempting God. Jesus responds that we are not to do so. The third temptation is toward power. And the devil pulled out all the stops. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says rather provocatively, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. That statement by the devil has serious and sobering implications, and some political leadership bears out this claim. The devil offers it all to Jesus if he will bow down and worship him. Jesus must have perceived this power as temptation since it is clearly one of the most powerful human drives and it is the one that would have met the messianic expectations of his upbringing and of his people. The Jews were dispirited by Roman occupation, and such a magnificent political change would without doubt establish Jesus' rule. But would that also have changed their hearts? And there was the price. Jesus responded by harking back to the first commandment, 
the price was too high. And so with the third temptation, the devil left him. But as the Gospel of Luke hastens to add, until an opportune time. Jesus had passed through his initiation of both great light and great darkness. And so he began his ministry. What does this tell us as we move into the penitential season of Lent? First, it is an appropriate gospel after the season of Epiphany, which is symbolized by a bright star, that we look now at darker issues. We have stood in the light, and now it's time to learn our way in the dark. But most importantly, it speaks of a right relationship with God. In our first lesson, the story of Adam and Eve, we see the first couple also standing in the light in the garden, and then the serpent brings the voice of temptation and they succumb to it. While there is much that can be said about the story of Adam and Eve, and it has been re-examined and reinterpreted in recent years to shed new light on the history of women and ancient religions where the serpent was worshipped, its purpose for this first Sunday of Lent is to demonstrate the very human tendency to disobey and fall from grace. The first couple was persuaded to disobey because they wanted to be as God. Disobedience to God, the tension between my will and thy will, is at the root of all sin. It is the tension that created the cross. Our second lesson from Paul's letter to Rome sets forth the Christian theological position that the grace and righteousness of Jesus is the antidote for humanity's fall. Just as the first sin brought condemnation and death to all, so the life and death of Jesus on the cross brought justification and life for all. The righteousness and grace of Jesus was based on his clear adherence to the law as stated in Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus did not waver when tempted with the ministry of bread to win over the masses or with the use of signs and magic or with tremendous political power. Jesus chose to have his only authority come from God. And so, as we struggle with our own temptations, and we all do, we would do well to remember that Jesus was also tempted, and he overcame evil and maintained his moral compass by loving God and keeping his relationship with God above all else. He is the light of the world, and that is the light that will guide us through the dark. Amen.